Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Tesla stock is down 8% in early trading this morning after reporting a record decline in deliveries during the first quarter, stoking concern that demand may be slackening for the Model 3 sedan it introduced less than two years ago. To help us in all things Tesla, we welcome Liam Denning. Uh, Liam is energy mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, uh, joins us on the phone. Liam, thank you so much for joining us. How concerned should investors be should tesla be about this latest delivery shortfall uh, very concerned uh i mean essentially what these numbers do is they blow a hole in the growth narrative around the stock um one number to keep in mind is that the, the stock was off the last time i looked it was off about eight percent down in the kind of 260s level um that is still if you can believe it more than five thousand times gap earnings estimates for 2019, this is a stock that needs a growth narrative to uh, to stay anywhere near where its valuation is right now. And um, and what we saw in these first quarter sales numbers is, you know, if you think about Tesla's lineup, you can divide it into two camps. Uh, the Model Three is the growth engine. That's where, you know, it's the lower priced uh, lower price model um, that's meant to uh, ramp up volume and. and bring Tesla towards being more of a mass market uh, car maker. Um, the models S and X, the older ones are the higher price variants. They're kind of pools of uh, gross profit margin. Both of them took a hit. So the Model 3 was down about 20% quarter on quarter in terms of deliveries, and the Model S and X was down more than half. How much can we just say, well, Right now, there are a bunch of headwinds. You've got the electric vehicle tax subsidy uh, that the U.S. had been uh, allowing that they actually pulled back on. Then you have the fact that China is having some concerns with the U.S. over trade, that that might impede uh, Tesla's footprint there. I mean, how much? How many excuses can you make for Tesla that actually uh, ring true to you? I mean, there are, there are headwinds, and you know, no one should downplay the, uh, the challenges of trying to... Um, trying to you know, grow, grow the electric vehicle market. Um, I think Tesla's problem is a little more structural than that. Uh, the problem they have is that what they essentially did towards the end of 2018 was to pull forward um, demand for the Model 3 um, and, and especially the, the kind of higher priced variants. And you know, one of the things that happened at the end of 2018 was that Tesla reported um, two consecutive quarters, uh, profitable quarters, uh, the first time it's ever done that. Not big profits, but profits nonetheless. And, and that was seen by many as, as kind of the company turning a corner. Um, what we're looking at now uh, with the first quarter numbers is, I would say, payback for that pulling forward of demand. And in some ways, uh, while it's clear Q1 numbers, uh, when they get reported in a few weeks' time, are not going to be good. The bigger question is probably what happens in Q2, Q3, um, because unless we see volume come back, then uh, Tesla's profit and cash flow numbers especially uh, are just not going to look good. So, Liam, it's not just production and delivery and sales issues that Tesla is uh, facing at the moment. There's also something with the SEC, and I know you're heading to court later today 
about the Elon Musk issue with the SEC. Can you give us the latest on what is going on there and what could the judge rule today? Sure. So this goes back to uh, Elon Musk's um, uh, tussle with the SEC over his funding secured um, tweet last August. Um, Essentially, he came to a settlement with the SEC. Uh, The SEC alleges that he violated that settlement and basically asked a judge uh, to find Elon Musk in contempt. Um, Both sides filed uh, their respective arguments, and the judge has asked for oral arguments today, and that's where I'm heading later. Uh, It's unclear exactly what will happen. Uh, This kind of ruling, my understanding, it's quite narrowly defined, so my guess is we're not going to see anything terribly dramatic today. Possibly we might see the judge uh, impose another fine of some sort. Um, essentially what the judge is going to, tr- uh, what the SEC wants the judge to do today is to take some sort of action that will uh, force Elon Musk to, to uphold the terms of the settlement. Um, for, for the company, it's an unwelcome distraction. Uh, it's possibly damaging to the brand, who knows? Um, but for me, it highlights uh, just the sort of the, the chronic problems of, of governance um, at Tesla. Just uh, quickly here, I'm wondering why you think the shares aren't down more? Because you started out saying uh, that there's still a 5,000 uh, times uh, profitability kind of <laughs> baked into uh, valuation baked into the stocks right now. So why haven't we seen a bigger fall? Well, I think, uh, you know, partly it's because Tesla has in the past uh, shrugged off um, bad news. Um, Remember, this is a stock where the value is largely predicated on people's long-term views, their faith in the genius of Elon Musk, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So one set of historical numbers taken on its own tends not to shake uh, kind of core faith in the stock. However, yeah. as we look forward, I think what people may be waiting for, at least some members of the shareholder base may be waiting for, is, is the actual accounts when they come yeah. out, you know, in a few yeah. weeks' time and, and, and waiting to see what these bad sales numbers mean, right. truly mean for profits, cash flow, that sort of thing. Liam Denning, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Liam Denning is the energy mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, talking about Tesla and how. The numbers just don't matter for some people. It's all about faith. Well, I am sitting here watching Paul Sweeney reading uh, Chicken Soup for His Soul, uh, (laughs) trying to find some sort of elixir to uh, the daily grind that I put him through. So I think we'll have to talk about that. And we'll have to talk about that with someone who knows uh, better than I uh, about Chicken Soup for the Soul. And that is Bill Ruhana, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment. Uh, He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Bill, uh, we're here to talk about Chicken Soup for the Soul, but in particular, (laughs) the new venture, with Sony Pictures, uh, which is sort of an interesting play on the new media business model. Please explain. So, first of all, good morning. And uh, second good morning. of all, second of all, uh, our joint venture with Sony is called Crackle Plus. Uh, is is an online network that's ad supported. So you you may have heard this phrase AVOD, which is different than SVOD, which is subscription video on demand. And AVOD is now sort of becoming- I love that Paul is nodding along, and AVOD and SVOD mean nothing to me, but yeah, go on. And actually, 
that's that's part of the issue and, and also part of the opportunity. The fact is that the AVOD space, the ad-supported video on demand space, is expected to double in the next five years. We think that's a big opportunity. We know that people have taken and put a lot of resources into competing in subscription video. You have Netflix and you have Disney and all those big players who are spending a ton of money to compete there. We think they're ignoring ad-supported video on demand and we don't expect people to ignore free video that they can get and not pay for and can satisfy their needs. So we're building a big business around that. So give us a sense of that advertising video on demand market today. You know, what's the size of it? Who are the players? Is it growing? How big is it? Yeah, so today it's it's said to be about 14 or $15 billion a year, which is not a very big market. And as I said, it's expected to more than double over the next five years. I mean, we are now one of the biggest players. With Crackle Plus, we may actually be the biggest player. It's a little hard to tell, you know, as, as in many cases with new industries, the numbers are sort of coming together, the statistics are being defined. In terms of monthly active users, which seems to be a very critical statistic to people, we are at least as big as anybody else. The other big players are Pluto TV, uh, Tubi, um, and of course Amazon is moving into this space like they apparently are moving into everything. Every <laughs> so, so, so they're going to be a, a, certainly a big player. Can you just tell us Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment? What, what shows are on that? Okay, so Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment has a few parts. One part is the part we're talking about right now, our online network part, but we also have a, a Chicken Soup for the Soul Originals production series, which has 11 series that we've produced over the years. Chicken Soup for the Soul's Hidden Heroes has been on CBS and the CW and was just nominated for an Emmy Award, which we're very proud of for Outstanding Family Series. Uh, but we also have series such as Chicken Soup for the Soul's Animal Tales, which is on the CW. We've done things called Project Dad, which was on TLC and Discovery Life. We've done a whole series of, of series. So, but what, how much of this would go on the AVOD? Did I do that right? Yes, very good. I, yeah, you, you got it right. Um, so our strategy from the very beginning, Lisa, was to build uh, the capability to make content profitably with the idea that we would retain rights to go onto our own networks. Because in the network business, in the AVOD and SVOD business, there are two costs that matter, marketing to new customers and the cost of content. And so our strategy from the beginning has been to try to get an advantage in both those places. We've gotten the advantage in the marketing side by building followers and brands, and we now have about 10 million followers on our social media. That's up from 1 million when we started. And on the content side, we've built a capability to make our own series as well as to buy other people's television and film, and we redistribute that. So we've done that in a couple of ways. All right, so when we talk about these programming services, it's all about programming, and we see Netflix going to spend twelve or fifteen billion dollars, and HBO with its you know three, four, five billion dollars. What is presumably Sony's bringing programming to the table? So, what are you expecting from Sony in this joint venture? Uh, we're getting a lot of things from Sony because they, like us, see a big opportunity to build a major network that's ad-supported. So, we're getting uh, access to their content, as you said, and we're also getting uh, shared technology because they have a variety of networks that have the same kind of technology needs, and that's lowering our technology costs. And we're getting this very large and robust network to start with. Is there any pushback from advertisers in how you calculate views and their, the efficacy of the video ads? You know, uh, not for us, but because we use third parties to mm. confirm exactly what it is that advertisers are getting. So they don't have to count on us counting. They, it's unlike Facebook, who does their own counting, 
we actually use third parties to count for us, and they report to the advertisers. I mean, I guess, how sustainable is the ad-supported video model? I think it's enormous. I think it's going to be a very important part of the future. I don't expect people to go exclusively to subscriptions. It, it seems like it's too many. You know, there's a, kind of a subscription fatigue already, and we're in the early stages of the development. I really expect the world to be about 50-50, 50% ad-supported, 50% subscriber-supported. If that turns out to be right, then the market is enormous for ad-support. Interesting. Bill Ruhanas, Chairman, CEO of Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. We are going to talk to a female juggernaut in the gaming industry, and we are so lucky to bring in Kate Gorman, founder, chief executive, and president for Fort Mason Games, based in San Francisco. Uh, so, Kate, let's start with the fact that when I saw scratch-off lottery tickets online, I thought, uh-oh, that could really be sort of a lead-in for some kind of addiction, but this is sort of the opposite, right? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Lisa. So what we have done at Fort Mason Games is we've created a free app that's disrupting the lottery. And so Americans spend, you know, $77 billion in fiscal 2018 on the lottery. And a lot of that is in scratch-off tickets. And so what we did was we created a free app that's free to play, free to enter sweepstakes, and you can win money by scratching off virtual lottery tickets or virtual scratch cards. And it's all ad-supported. So we're really thinking about let's not – let people go and gamble. We'd rather have you play a fun game-like experience on your phone while you're waiting for the bus or, you know, intermittently throughout your daily life. So, Kate, at Fort Mason Games, and the company's focused on developing games that are catered towards women. Give us a sense of the gaming market today. What's the mix between men and women gamers? Absolutely. So, Fort Mason Games, we make games for everyone, but particularly with women in mind. And for me personally, that means that women are thought about in the design process and portrayed respectively throughout gameplay. And so Google did a survey that says 65% of women in the U.S. are playing mobile games today. And I expect that only to grow more as our mobile devices become more prevalent and powerful than ever. And so we're really incorporating gaming and entertainment into our life throughout the day rather than just having shorter experiences once a day. And so with that comes more variety and diversity of players, especially women. What is female gaming versus male gaming? You know, there's not a stereotypical difference, but what I think that means is broadening our concept of what is a game and people are having different types of entertainment and they're looking for entertainment and these little dopamine hits throughout their day instead of just sitting down with a gaming console. So as we're seeing mobile devices and streaming expand, we're seeing different types of games and those are bringing in different players. And so there's really no male-female gaming. It's just our concept of gaming and entertainment is expanding. So, Kate, what are some of the current trends in gaming right now? Absolutely. So we're seeing a lot of really interesting trends in the gaming market. We saw Stadia by Google released, which is a fully streaming uh, service that will use kind of these lower-end devices to allow players to stream games over high-quality Internet connections and using the cloud compute power to drive that. And then on the other side of it, we're seeing kind of these casual gameplay with Apple Arcade 
and that's a subscription model. It'll allow you to play offline. And so that's really great for trying lots of different types of casual games that you may not be interested in paying for up front. Um, but altogether, it creates a really interesting ecosystem of a wide variety of different types of games coming to the market. So, Kate, I want to go full circle with you and go back to this uh, digital scratch-off lottery ticket model because it actually raises some interesting ideas about what advertising could look like. The idea that people get that dopamine rush, as you were talking about, uh, with the scratch-off online for free without having to gamble their own money. And then they get actual prizes, presumably by retailers or other outlets that want to uh, – advertise that want to show off what they have to offer. How big of a business is that right now? And how much do you see it potentially growing? Well, we can't speak to the size of the market because we're really one of the first in it. And so we're really growing it. It's us. But but just since January, we've seen our players scratch off over 6.5 million virtual scratchers. And so there's a huge market for this. We're still growing really rapidly, but it's a really interesting and innovative way to disrupt a market, which is give away something for free and and monetize it with ads. And we've seen this in many other markets historically. And so the lottery is one that um, seems difficult to disrupt because it's a physical piece of paper. But rethinking that model, um, I think it's it's hard to say what the actual – you know, eclipse of the market would be. Right. So just lastly, Kate, when you think about uh, women as gamers, is there any genre that's been particularly successful for women? Absolutely. I think the casual market is, and you think of the games like Candy Crush, or we make a social casino game called Confetti Casino, which is really geared towards women to have a party-like environment. It's no gambling and you play slots. And so we see over 70% of our players are female. And so I think that we see these more casual, fun games with lighthearted themes that are more targeted to women or respectful to women are really resonating with women. But ultimately, they're also playing all sorts of other games too. Kate Gorman, thank you so much. Uh, Kate is founder, chief executive officer and president of Fort Mason Games based in San Francisco. Talking about the the gaming business, the mobile gaming business, uh, trends in that business, uh, and uh, how game uh, programmers and game creators uh, are targeting uh, women, which has historically been arguably a little bit underserved in some of the content. I don't think they're necessarily playing Call to Duty all the time, uh, but uh, clearly they are a major. As a representative of the female (laughs) gender, I will say not really. Not playing Call to Duty, right? But clearly a big segment. Well, the Wall Street Journal recently ran an article about how fewer men are buying suits as casual dress codes in the workplace become more widespread. To get a sense of how widespread, we welcome our next guest, James Fallon. James is the editorial director for Women's Wear Daily. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Yes. Both of the men that I'm sitting with, with right now have suits on. But yes. carry on. <laughs> yeah, carry on. And I have the tie, so going full, full, But full no board. trousers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, James, I mean, how big of an issue? Is this a trend or is this a, a blip? Uh, are men actually buying fewer suits? Oh, men have been buying fewer suits for ever since Casual Friday started. So it just depends upon what industry you're in and what category you're looking at. So, I mean, the Goldman Sachs changing its policy towards suits and allowing the bankers when they're not meeting clients not 
not to have to wear a suit is really what spurred the latest reports. But it, Goldman was actually the last of the banks to allow that. And I mean, I knew bankers in London in the 90s who were allowed to wear more casual clothes when they weren't meeting clients. But if they're meeting clients, they have to put a suit on. Um, I don't think we're ever going to see the suit disappear in you know law, law offices or those kinds of places, the more traditional um, professions. But I mean... It is becoming more casual. Men are wearing suits without ties, as I am, um, sometimes with sneakers and so forth. So definitely. But, but not full <laughs> athleisure yet. That's just left for the women. <laughs> yes. for the, Well, again, it depends upon the profession. I mean, it's probably in Silicon Valley, it's much more casual. Um, so yes. Okay. I, don't, I don't think men, thank God, aren't going to work in leggings um, <laughs> yet. Let us um, hope. Uh, um, uh, although, <laughs> hey, if it floats your boat. I, honestly, though, I am wondering how retailers are adapting to this shift towards something more casual. Basically, I mean, you're, you're obviously in a lot of different ways. I mean, start with the shoe department. You're seeing them carry a lot more sneakers and that kind of thing. Then you're seeing them introduce a lot more casual wear and not shrink their suit departments, but perhaps de-emphasize their suit departments. But even coming here, we passed Paul Stewart, we passed Brooks Brothers, we passed um, Joseph A. Banks. They all had suits in the window. Um, so it's still something that you are pushing. walking in Midtown, <laughs> whereas you basically uh, many Wall Street. So, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, exactly. it's a select group. I mean, let's it's be select, clear. It's a very small sample. I understand that. But it's also the margins are higher on suits than on things. But also men buy casual clothes more than they buy suits. I mean, it's interesting, James. I mean, I'm just thinking about where a lot of college graduates are, are, are going once they graduate, and it seems like more and more are going towards technology. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking about, like, where, where my kids are thinking about it, it's just technology go west, and there is almost no suit culture out west. It is extraordinary, isn't it? It is extraordinary, but, I mean, take, look at the irony of the Apple news announcement last week last week or the week before uh all the tech guys weren't in suits steven spielberg steve carell all the male guys hollywood people they were in suits i mean they were wearing suits um my eldest son works in tech he works from home most of the time if he meets a client he has to wear a suit so again it 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 depends I thought he was going to say that he sits there in a suit and tie at his desk <laughs> feeling professional. I, I do have to wonder, uh, with, with respect to style going forward, uh, is there a sense of what is appropriate if it's not a suit, right? I mean, it's sort of, uh, there's sort of a uniform that's, yes. you know, maybe a hoodie on Silicon right. Valley, but what's the uniform for business casual, which is absolutely confusing uh, they and went through that for ter- They went through that terror with, on Casual Fridays where, you know, endless golf shirts and um, khakis. Uh, I think it's, it's become <laughs> not, not, not your speed? Not my speed, no. Um, it's because, I mean, I uh, was, okay, slightly different example, but looking globally. I was in Tokyo last month. We had, a, we had an event there. Um, I went to a luncheon with the head of fast retailing. It was off the record, so I was told that the uh, dress code was casual. So I turned up in a jacket, a shirt, a pair of jeans, and a pair of sneakers. Every other journalist there was in a suit and a tie. And I said to the public relations person, I said, didn't they get the casual memo? And he said, no, no, this is the way you're meant to dress in most circumstances like this. He said, it's, it's a suit and a tie. I'm and, very confused. 
So, so again, globally, it is the suit is still seen as the uniform. I think it's going to become. A, I'm not holding myself up as a fashion plate. A, a jacket, a pair of casual trousers or jeans, tennis shoes, and then a nice shirt. But I hope not the golf shirt, khaki thing. Thank you. <laughs> So how are the how are the you know the Brooks Brothers of the world? I think suits uh, Men's Warehouse, Joseph A. Bank. How are they reacting? They, well, they're their, suits. <laughs> their suits. I mean, you know, Men's Warehouse is in the Taylor Brands. Its parent company has gone through a real transition. Tough, very tough time financially. They're adapting, but um, ironically, at the very high designer end, as I said before. This whole streetwear vibe where it was sweatpants and tennis shoes and hoodies, etc. The last round of men's shows, the pendulum is swinging back where the young kids are looking at suits again with tennis shoes in a more casual way. But to a 15-year-old who's grown up wearing nothing but hoodies and tennis shoes and jeans or sweatpants, a suit is, is now countercultural. Yeah. In a way. So the pendulum could swing back. We can't let you go without talking about fleece vests. Because we did have that story. Oh, I love fleece vests. No, <laughs> <laughs> to go with the uh, golf shirts and the khaki exactly. pants. That's your look. Um, I will say that Patagonia, we reported that Patagonia is cracking down on the corporate logo vests that they are giving yes. out or that they are selling, not giving out. Right. They won't sell them to anyone unless they follow a certain mandate uh, for their company that they think is responsible socially and environmentally. And I'm just wondering uh, from, you know, perhaps a sartorial resp- uh, responsibility standpoint, vests, pro con, uh, ever de- going away? No, unfortunately, uh, and it depends upon the vest as a, whether it's a pro or a con. Okay, fleece on the trading floor. Uh, no, definitely <laughs> not. <laughs> okay, when's would you allow fleece trousers on the trading floor? Let's put it that way. No. Are you are you a suspenders kind of guy? Uh, no, definitely not. Okay, no. that, that's that's Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. And what yeah. about skinny jeans, skinny pants, skinny pants in? It out? depends upon the man who's wearing or person <laughs> who's wearing the skinny jeans. If if they're squeezed into the skinny jeans, God no, please. Pleats. They're coming back. Pleats are making what? I thought that. (laughs) Now I'm totally confused. (laughs) Okay, but double-breasted jackets. They have tried to bring it back. Mark 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 Crumpton from Bloomberg News and Uh, Bloomberg Television is trying his best (laughs) to bring it back. They the designers keep trying to bring it back. It's not going to go. Basically. I could talk to you all day about this. This is absolutely fantastic. And I don't think I'm going to have the image of men wearing Lululemon leggings to work out of my head in with a, a long with time. Ja- with, with the suit, suit jacket. jacket. <laughs> Casual Fridays. Thank you so much for being with us. James Fallon, editorial director of Women's Wear Daily, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios, wearing a suit. Paul Sweeney alongside me, also wearing a suit and tie. I am not wearing a suit and tie. Uh, and I've got to say, business casual. Fridays definitely confusing for women. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.